Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Please stay standing as I read the scripture today from John 7, 37 through 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, we thank you so much for... um, just the generations, God, that you have had your hand upon um, through time and um, just over the years, the mothers and fathers in the faith, both um, biologically as well as spiritually, God, that um, just keep handing down um, your truth and your love, God. We just thank you so much that that's the reality we live in. Um, and I just pray that you would um, be with Brian as he delivers this message today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, as we get into the scripture today, have you, I mean, who here, like seriously, show of hands if you want to, if you're comfortable, has been like really, 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 really parched, like super thirsty beyond like, like dangerously low thirsty? Show of hands. Okay, we got a, a few people. Okay. So, so my, my assumption is that in this day and age of uh, wonderful water being available wherever we want it, very rarely are we going to go without like water, without, without the, the sustenance of water being present for us. We have a drinking fountain all over. We can buy bottled waters, like waters. It's a massive industry of how much the bottled waters are. And so in regards, like most of us as a whole don't experience that thirst except for maybe some extenuating circumstances. If I went through and told the story, very rarely would I think any of you say, well, I just was going about my day and I forgot to drink water for three days. And that's why I became parched. Like most of us would say, well, I was out hiking, or I lost this, or I was in this, this kind of this area that was a bit hostile, and water wasn't present, and I couldn't drink it, or something happened, some serious circumstance happened. What's interesting about the text as we finish out chapter um, 7 today, in this, in this whole long conversation that's happening around the festival of booze, the Feast of Booze, or the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, is that water in this day and age meant something drastically different than water for us today. We all know we need water, and we probably don't drink enough of it. We probably drink too much coffee or, or energy drinks or any of the other things in place of water and be like, well, they're made with water, so that should work, right? 
But, but, but this day and age, when they were there, the people that this context is written, that this is in place, water had become the, the, not only just a symbol of life, but it was actually like the life. They lived, and most of the water were cisterns or wells that would potentially, con- like on a regular season, dry up as the season would go, depending upon the rain that came. Running water was a, a spring of life and amazing. So that's why you always see through the Old Testament as you look at it when they talk about life and water, this idea of this moving water, it's always clean, it's always present, it's never ending, it just keeps coming as opposed to filling with the rain and then emptying it out. And so water to them meant something very different. When you live in a desert and you have to walk distance to get water, the, the, the reality or the likeliness of going without water becomes higher and higher and higher. That's a context that's really important for us to understand as we dig into this scripture because I think there's a couple things out of this text that, that we, because of our in ignorance to the experience of what they're doing, actually changes the way that, that Jesus speaks and, and affects how we see what he's doing. See, the, the Festival of Booths, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles was a, was a yearly kind of uh, like happened all the time. Men were required to be at it at the minimum, but a lot of times families would do it. And everyone would kind of head up to Jerusalem to go through this whole Feast of Booths, which was a purpose to remind them of God's provision in the, the wilderness and of water that came from the struck rock in Exodus like we see. It also then had kind of morphed into this idea, this promise of the, the future hope of the living water of, of the Messiah. It was this huge festival. It happened just after um, kind of late fall, late autumn, after the final harvest. It was five days after the Day of Atonement that was celebrated. And it was about, a, about an eight-day celebration. It became an eight-day eight celebration. It was seven in the beginning, but then had, by the time Jesus was in place, it had become eight. They added a day of just kind of solitude and prayer and reflection on the day after of the Feast of Booths. It was a celebration of thanksgiving, of God's ongoing provision. People would dwell in tents. They'd go, it was like, this is the first camping, people. Like, they were, they were camping in the desert. They would do these booths, and they would have this spot. And the celebration emphasized how God provided water to Israel in the wilderness on their way to Canaan. Each day of the feast had specific things that were supposed to happen. In the morning, each day, the, um, there was a water ceremony in which a procession of priests kind of descended to the south border of the city, Gihon Springs, which fed into the Pool of Siloam. They would grab this really ornate kind of pitcher. It has a really cool word, and they would pick this water up, and then they'd walk it back up to the Temple Mount. And as they were walking up to the, the water gate, which was, it became the water gate south side of the inner court, as they were moving their way up, the, the high priest, everyone in the choir would chant around them, Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And as the procession approached the, the south gate, a trumpet would blast three horns, kind of in this joyful occasion. This is all very specific. This is how this has to happen for this to be followed correctly, to honor God the way that they were expected. It had been passed on and passed on and passed on and done year after year after year. Also, as the water was being carried back up the hill to the gate, everyone else got to take part in this. Not only were they doing the chanting originally of the Isaiah 12, but they would follow him carrying in their right hand tree branches, reminiscent of the desert booths, and then in their left hand citrus branches, kind of reminiscent of the harvest. And the crowd would shake these, and they would sing by memorization Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. I'd encourage you to go back and, and, and read those later. And as they were just getting to 118, they'd be in, in, the, in the, the Temple Mount. They'd kind of be working their way into the altar. And they would, they would, the water that was being offered 
to God at the time of the morning sacrifice was also the time of the daily drink offering of wine. And so the priest would, would circle the altar and they would pour the, the wine into the silver, or the, the silver bowl that that one required and then the, they'd do the water into the other one as this idea of being poured out before the Lord. And while the crowd circled him and continued singing, on the seventh day of the festival, they do that whole thing seven times. That whole procession, everything, the whole thing would happen seven times. And that was what they did on the seventh day. And then the eighth day was kind of the day of rest that had been added to it. And the whole idea behind this was they were, they were pleading to God to provide like he did in the wilderness for them at a time that was very dangerous and difficult in Israel because it's coming to late autumn, moving into the winter, and they were, they were going to be dry. It was going to be hard to get water. And so this is the festival that's happening and it's full of all kinds of symbolism, too. The, the, Judaism saw this water ceremony on multiple levels. Again, it was to, to help at the drought. It was, it was full of this rich symbolism that God brought water from a rock that we see out of Numbers 20. And here, water was flowing from the sacrificial rock, the altar of the temple, which we see prophecies that talk about in Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 47, that they had visions of rivers flowing from the temple and a miraculous display of God's blessing. In a drought-stricken land, it was a, a spectacular vision of water, life-giving water flowing from God's life-giving temple. It had also come to really tie itself, and we even see John adds this in this text that Ben just read for us, that the living waters represent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which Jesus was to send when he was glorified. In the Gospel of John, we talked about this. Anytime John uses the word glorified, he's talking about the cross. Jesus' final glorification is in the cross, in the death on the cross. This also had rich kind of end times eschatology theology, kind of this end time thing pointing to the Lord, pouring out of his Holy Spirit on the last days. And it's in that context, it's in that backdrop that Jesus stands up just before people were trying to arrest him. Some were trying to kill him. Some are intrigued by him. And it's in that context that Jesus gets up and says, I am the living water. I'm the living water. Now, there are a couple things that we have to understand, textual difficulties that are important for us to understand, I think, because this is a, a text that, uh, if you look at the Greek, it doesn't have any um, grammar, it doesn't have any punctuation. It's just this long kind of sentence. And so you can identify this a couple different ways. I don't think it changes the understanding, but if you spend any time reading or looking into the Festival of Booths and tied to this, I want to just talk about it a little bit because it's important for us to see how those things play out. Because ultimately, there's a few things that don't make sense. He says he stands up on the last day, the great day. Well, some would argue that the last day was the seventh day in the context of what the Feast of the Tabernacles were. But the last day had become the eighth day. But no one would argue that everyone would know that the great day was the day the water was being poured out the seven times. So which day did Jesus stand up? That's one of the variants, and, and lots of scholars and theologians love to geek out and argue about why one or the other. If you think about it in the context, either way, I mean, both would make a pretty stunning statement. If people are trying to pour into the altar and saying, here's where life is, and Jesus says, hey, hey, don't look at that, look at me, he stands up in the middle of it and says, I'm the living water. That's, that's a, a big standard point. The other thing, too, if you think about it, if on the eighth day they've done this whole ceremony, they've, they've walked the hill, they're getting tired, they're needing water just by doing this hill back and forth seven times, and on the eighth day they're looking out and it's still fall in, in Israel and there's no rain coming and it's getting drier and drier and drier and him standing up and saying, I'm the living water. Come to me and you shall not thirst. 
So either way, you can see that both of those would work. Another difficulty here is he says, um, the Gospel of John says, as it is written in the Scripture, we actually don't have an exact text for Jesus in referring to what he's saying here. But there are many Scriptures all over in the Old Testament that talk about water. In fact, there's just too many for me to even talk about today. It's all over. Because again, it had become such a picture of life. Water and life were the same. They were, in, they were synonymously. And the most Jews in this day would have used the language as the river of living water. This source is, is a, a picture of God and the Messiah and the Holy Spirit that is to come. But we see all over. This could just be in reference to the Exodus story, which we see reflected in Psalm 105. Where it talks about the, the Jesus is, or it talks about the Messiah being bread and water. They're linked. Exodus 16 and Nehemiah and Psalm 78 and Isaiah 48. The flowing water is a symbol of God's provision. Ezekiel 47, like we said earlier. This, this idea of the prophecy, even Isaiah 12, 3 or Isaiah 55. There's so many scriptures that talk about this. So even though we don't know exactly which text is as the scripture says, we know that ultimately the scripture does point to this. The link of water and salvation is reminiscent of Isaiah 12 at 3, the one they chant, so it could have been just that. But it's also the connection to Zechariah 14 or Ezekiel 47's temple vision, which is then reiterated in Revelation 22. And so there's scripture all over that, that is fine in there. The, the last and the most difficult understanding of this text is verse 37 and 38 because of our understanding of adding in punctuation and the Greek, the original Greek not having that, where the period goes makes a very big difference on how we understand this text. And there's, there's many, many questions that come out of this, this scripture, many different views, but there's two predominant views and very, very brilliant people sit on either side. I think I'm going to hopefully help us understand that, that really either way it doesn't necessarily matter. But the two common views um, is who's the source of living water? The way that we read it in most of our text today, it puts a period after, um, in verse 37, it says, it says um, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, period. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The difficulty that comes out of this text with it said this way is ultimately it's making the source of living waters the believer that becomes a believer saying, whoever believes in me, they will become a source. They will become living water for others. They will become the source is the way that you could potentially understand that. The other way is it actually puts the whoever comes, it's, it would say it, if anyone thirsts and believes in me, or let him come to me, believe in me, and drink, as the scripture has said. So that, that makes Jesus the source of the living water. And I'm telling you, there is just hundreds of pages of lots of scholars just geeking out on which one this may be. And really, at the end of the day, I think what's, what's, what we have to look at is depending upon whether we're saying the believer becomes the source of living water or Jesus is the source of living water, it's best for us to look at the similarities between either view. And so one scholar says it this way. He says, both interpret water as a spirit. Both insist that the blessing is something believers will enjoy only later from the standpoint of Jesus' ministry, meaning when he's glorified at the cross. Both relate the promise of the Spirit to Jesus' invitation at the Feast of Tabernacles, and both make Jesus the one who supplies the drink and quenches the thirst. The principal difference between the two are that the first says the streams of living water will flow from the believer, while the second says that they will flow from Christ. The first continues Jesus' words to the end of verse 38, while the second sees them ending in the first clause of verse 38. 
And I think what ultimately, as I, as I studied this and tried to kind of understand the best I could, I think, I think this might actually be a really brilliant picture to the, the, the triune God that we see here. And I think it's important because there's really great application no matter which way you study this. No matter which one you say, if Jesus is the source and stays as Jesus is the source, or we become the source as believers that have followed him, then both have practical application. But I think what's interesting is that I don't think that this text, as we look at it, I don't think this text really ever says that I, Bren, or you as a follower of Jesus become the source, but the Holy Spirit that indwells us is the source that's coming out of us, which in essence then puts it right back on Jesus as the source. So ultimately, Jesus is the the one who satisfies the drink, the Holy Spirit, the gift that comes at this time, and maybe the reason why the variance is there is because at this time, Jesus has not been glorified and has not sent the Spirit to indwell all of his children. And so ultimately, I think the best way to understand this is that it's more Trinitarian. Jesus is the source that we come to to drink. We become a well of living water as the source, the Holy Spirit, after Jesus' glorification, dwells in us. And we live by his power, making disciples of all nations. See, the, the, the application is still very important for us. Either way, if we believe that only the source is there and that the Holy Spirit isn't the source in us, then it is our job as God's children to continue point and get people to the source, Jesus Christ. If, if we are indwelling, if the source of the Holy Spirit is indwelling in us, it's still our job to go and make disciples of all nations. We, we, we're still on the hook in the application. Either way, that's why I don't think it's that important for us to necessarily know. But I do believe that the text is clear here, especially since John goes on and adds his own little commentary in verse 39. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. I think, that, I think it's pretty clear that, that ultimately the source of living water is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But we, as his church, the embodied, the dwelling place of God through the Spirit of God now, get to walk with that source in us and share that source to everyone. And it's never meant to point back to us because remember, Jesus just said, you want to know how my, my teaching is true because I, everything I do is for the glory of God. So that's where he's going here. But what's interesting in this text, before we finish, is we see this invitation, which we'll see over and over over again in Jesus and how he does it through this gospel here. And this one, I love it because it's brilliant. He he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. So you really see these three kind of steps to understanding what it means to believe and receive as Jesus. You see, the first one is that you must be thirsty. maybe, Maybe some of you are super disciplined, like, yeah, I like do CrossFit and everything else, and you drink water like on a timer all day, Right? But most people, you drink when you feel thirsty. Now, there's, I think it's healthier to just drink all the time, just like this analogy will fall apart if I'm comparing it to Jesus. But the idea of us coming to him, first, if you don't believe you need him, you're not going to come to him. It takes first to come to him. If case, first, remember, he draws, God draws us, and everyone he draws will come to him. We see that in the text here. But it takes us understanding that when we come to him, we're thirsty, We are without. We do not have something. We need something. The first step to the invitation is recognizing that you need something. This is, I think, what was the biggest issue with a lot of the Jews in this day, the the religious leaders, those that were opposed or kind of in conflict with Jesus, is that they didn't think they needed anything. They felt like they had already had it in this nice little box of religion and ceremonies. And Jesus is saying, no, those ceremonies were always to point to your need of me as the Messiah. Do you need something? 
Romans 3, 23 says it this way. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, remember, if we want to be where Jesus is, we have to be living our lives presenting the glory of God. Well, we fall short of it. There's our need. We are thirsty. And not like thirsty like I drank too many energy drinks today or just a lot of coffee, but thirsty like I've been in a desert for a whole long time and if I don't get a single drop of water, I may die. But the truth spiritually is, apart from Jesus, we're dead. It's not that we may die. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he says, come. The Father will draw you out. Come to me. Acts 4 says it this way. I love it. He says, uh, uh, right after he's kind of confronting people, saying, you guys did this. He's kind of attacking the people about what they did to Jesus. He says, this Jesus, this one we're talking about that you want me to stop talking about, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, it's not enough to just know that you're thirsty. You must come to the source. It's not enough to just go, I need something. I must get in close proximity to the source. I must find it. How silly would it be for me to be dying of thirst and have water bottles standing in front of me going, it's just too far away. I just don't know if I want to drink it. So it's first, it's a recognition that we are thirsty. Second, it's a recognition that we must come to the thirst, the, the thirst quencher, come to the source. And then he says, drink. Gospel John says it all over. Receive Jesus for who he is. Believe in Jesus as the source of eternal life. Put your faith in him. It's not enough to be thirsty and to come to the source and then not drink. We must drink. And see, I think, I think that many people come. Many people, they, they have that moment. As I spent time in ministry and spent time walking with people, many people, they have that moment where they realize like, oh, I don't have it all together. And I do need help. And I am thirsty. And they come to Jesus because they're thirsty. And they come to him. And they spend time in proximity. And they do the things around him. And they put themselves in that nice little tidy religious box where if they could just do these next steps, everything will be okay, but they never truly drink. I liken it to all the people that have lived by a beach. Okay, I, I'm landlocked. I was grown and born and raised here in Idaho, so like our beach is Lucky Peak. That's like a man-made lake. It's a beach. It's not a beach, okay? I, every time I talk to someone who lives by a beach, I always ask him, like, are you there all the time? It's amazing. And almost every single person, especially the ones in California, no offense, I think it's because they're so busy trying to afford their lifestyle, which will be here at some point. We'll struggle to get to lucky point, okay? Um, um, But they're like, oh, no, I never go. I mean, it's right there, but I I never go because I'm busy. I got life. I I mean, the beaches are busy. It's it's just not there. And, And I think many people, many people view Jesus that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, I come to church periodically. I spend some time. I, I tip him a little bit with some money. I, I serve him a little bit here, and I feel good about myself. But no one ever really, or not no one, hopefully no one, few find it. The road is narrow, but the path is wide that leads to destruction, right? But very few stop to say, I, I want a drink of this. See, what happens is I think that a lot of people, they, they, they recognize they're thirsty, and in that moment, they come to Jesus. But instead of drinking for satisfaction, they all of a sudden get their eyes taken by this little well over here or this cistern. And they start drawing water from that. Like, ah, oh, that's good enough. There's water and coffee. That's good enough, right? We just keep drinking it. 
And this idea, we, we keep pulling from something else, and Jesus says, I'm right here. Drink from me. You will not thirst anymore. A lot of people spend a lot of time around Jesus, and many are beyond parched, but they keep going to the wells that dry up for life instead of coming to Jesus and drinking, putting one's faith in him so that you may not thirst again. Jesus stands up and says that if you are thirsty, drink from me. If you want salvation, drink from me. If you want to be sustained, come to me. If you drink of me, the source, I will give you the living water, the Holy Spirit, to flow out of you to make Jesus the source known to all people. Which is the other invitation in this text, which is interesting if you think about it. Are you willing to go out and share the source of Jesus to other people? Is your life marked in a way where you're going to share Jesus to those who know Jesus, to those who don't know Jesus? We should be showing Jesus in everything we say and do. You see, the invitation is brought. How are you going to respond? The rest of this text, all the way to 52, is people's different responses to Jesus. You see people that drink. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. I need to look no further. All that I've waited for is right here, and this is it. Does it say that they drink and they live their life perfectly after that? No. But they know where their source is. And you see those that are gawkers, those that are interested, they're, they're like intrigued. Wait, wasn't the Messiah supposed to be from Bethlehem? This guy comes from Galilee. This doesn't make sense. They're intrigued or maybe even confused a little bit. There still is no life sitting intrigued or confused. You must drink to have life. You must surrender, submit your entire life to his lordship in your life to have eternal life. And then you see those who are considering. And I love Nicodemus because he's the one that was confused and dumbfounded by the fact that he had to be born again. And he stands up and defends. He says, whoa, 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 before we kill this man, doesn't he deserve a trial? Doesn't our law require? So he, he pleads on the religious box that they all walk by and say, doesn't it require that we would do this right? And like anyone, if the group of people are rejecting Jesus, what do they do? They turn on anyone that would dare align themselves to him. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I think that's what this world will continue to do and is doing on hyperspeed right now. How dare we make a declaration that Jesus is the only way? That's so close-minded. So let's make fun of and attack those people that say that. What do they do? They say, Nicodemus is saying, oh, look at you standing for the Galilean. Are you from Galilee? Now that is a statement that doesn't make any sense to us. That's not nearly as bad as saying, are you from 2C? Like that's not, that's not how that works here. This is a really demeaning, horrible statement. And they're calling, they're, they're, they're attacking Nicodemus for just appealing to the law that they all say they hold up so valuable. Say, are you not from Galilee? And then they make the statement saying, does any prophet from Galilee go? Now it's a weird statement because most likely, and I like, guaranteed the Pharisees knew that Jonah and other prophets have come from the, the Galilee area. So I don't know if they were just saying that this is the prophet, like the Messiah, like he needs to come from Bethlehem as a, a, a lineage of David, and they just weren't following that Jesus wasn't born in Galilee. Or if this was just in the moment of haste and anger and, and frustration and attacking him, they just kind of threw off all inhibitions of understanding like we tend to do. But either way, that's a response to rejecting. So how will you respond to Jesus? Will you insult him? Will you consider him? Or will you drink? And some of you here, you, you continually say, I have surrendered my life to Jesus, but you just walk around life thirsty. Because you keep looking to your income, your job, 
your family status, your identity, or your reputation among men, your graduation, your, your what, whatever it may be. You keep looking to these other things saying, this will fill me, hopefully. And it doesn't. You drink, and for a moment you seem, your mind is tricked to say, yeah, this is good, but then you just end up that much thirstier. Where will you drink? The band's going to come up, and we're going to sing. We're going to spend some time worshiping. Jesus, and we even sing a song that talks about thirsty going there. My encouragement, my challenge, my plea would be, if you have not drinking from Jesus, if you have not given your life to Jesus, surrendered to him, it's not too late. Do it now. Don't wait for it. There's the prayer room back there. People would love to be praying with you. If you, if you want to pray with someone that brought you, then do it by all means. If you need to, to recognize your thirst, you need to be reminded of how thirsty you are, then, then spend time before the Lord and do that. But either way, don't walk away from the living water. It's not worth it. Nothing else will sustain you. Nothing else will satisfy you. Everything else is a fake imposter when it comes to eternal life. Would you drink from the river of flowing waters that never dries up? And that is Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for life in Jesus. We thank you for um, the way that you orchestrated everything so that we could still today be looking at your words, seeing the story, um, seeing how you historically presented and even seeing people that it's so easy for ourselves to see ourselves in. Maybe we're the gawker or considering or rejecting Jesus right now. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, draw us closer to you. And we would ultimately not just recognize our thirst and not just come to you, but that we would drink from you, Lord. And God, forgive us for those of us that have continued to drink from other wells, hoping to find life in something else, even though we have the living water inside of us. Father, I pray that our hearts would be captivated by that and that those around us would see the flowing water, the life that can be brought out by the Holy Spirit in each of us. As we sit and sing, as we stand and sing, God, I pray that we do as a heart that is full of life, not, not parched, not in a desolate, dry land, but you have, you have planted a vineyard in the most dry and desolate places, as Hosea says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God and love others.